You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. And wherever you are, Kyla, I could hear like birds singing behind you, sounds of nature, the sounds of spring. Oh, I've decided that I'm just going to lean really hard into my love of Disneyland. And rather than be like a Disney adult, I'm going to be a Disney character. So now just birdies follow me. Oh, well, fascinating. I've been asked many times, you know, why birds suddenly appear every time I'm near. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And I've never but been able to come up with a, a real, like a good response to that. But you're not actually anywhere near me. Well, yeah, I'm not anywhere near you, but today I was conducting hearings and, uh, the traffic slowed down for a little while outside and I could hear birds outside. And I thought that was just delightful. That is delightful. I, I enjoy that story. Um, I also enjoy this week's podcast and i thought we'd start with something a little bit funny a little bit strange before we get into the like more nitty-gritty law stuff because we've got something kind of heavy law wise to talk about um but we also have something kind of funny and uh it's not our ridiculous driver of the week because it's not a driver this is a case involving a cyclist this is a story from alana kelly Um, A case involving a cyclist who crashed his car, or his bike, sorry, crashed his bike into a bear. Into a black bear. Yeah. Yeah. Like, usually, you shouldn't have to be that afraid of black bears, as long as you don't bother them and you don't get between them and their kids. You're probably fine. Black bears are usually afraid of you. But, like, if you hit them with your bike, that's another story. Yeah. You know, I, I... I worry about cycling in, in wilderness locations in BC because I'm concerned about, um, concerned about, uh, cougars. And I'm also concerned about bears because I don't think I can ride my bike faster than a bear. And there have been times on my bike, I've seen a bear, but (laughs) running into a bear. When I was a kid, we, we used to go camping and I think we were camping in like Banff or Jasper one year. And there was a bear that was reported in the campground and My parents had us all like get in the car and sit in the car, um, packed all the food up and put it inside the car. And uh, my mom saw these two kids riding by on their bikes. And she said, where are you going? There's a bear. I said, yeah, we're going to go check it out. She's like, you're not. What if the bear starts chasing you? Like, no, we've got our bikes. We can ride real fast. (laughs) She forced those kids to go back to their parents. Yeah, well, smart for them to go back. Um, I've had so many different bear incidents in the course of my life. I have, uh, every once in a while, I have bear nightmares. I have, like, bear PTSD. So I'm uh, I'm cognizant of the risk, and I can tell you uh, that would be terrifying to strike a bear with your, uh, on your bike. I struck a bear once driving my TR6 on a mountain road, and uh, I immediately stopped my car, 
and I was in such shock that I got out and started running after the bear. Um, and I don't know why, uh, I've never been able to sort of sort that out. I didn't go very far. Like I made it probably about four or five meters before I realized, oh, this is probably not a good idea to go running after an injured bear. Um, it was probably, probably fun, I suspect. Probably but, uh, Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, if it happened on your bike, well, apparently this guy was lucky because there was people around who came and assisted him. Um, but yeah, terrifying, you know, you're blazing along on your bike and all of a sudden a bear comes tearing out. Bears move fast when they're running across the road, boy. And no compensation scheme. Like there's no one to sue if you hit a bear with your bike. There's no, you know, I, I would think, is it not the case that it, under the pre no fault days, if you had ICBC car insurance and you were riding your bike and you were involved in some sort of a collision, your car insurance would also cover you. Car insurance used to cover uh, you to insure you for third party, um, so the bear could sue. The bear could um, sue. <laughs> um, but the uh, it didn't cover you, and so you just basically got to rely on the healthcare system and hope you got some money in the bank to cover your missed work. Because again, the bear uh, doesn't have deep pockets and doesn't have insurance. So, and I doubt he properly identified the bear in any event. Probably didn't exchange information with the bear. No. Nope. And uh, I don't think the bear is obligated to do it, although I don't doesn't really spell that out in the Motor Vehicle Act. This is also kind of interesting because it used to be that if you hit an animal and then you left the scene, potentially that could be a criminal charge, depending if the animal fell within the definition of livestock. Now, well, it's isn't it a hit and run under the Motor Vehicle Act if you hit a bear? Is a bear a chattel belonging to a city? No, no, I don't think so. Um, not at all. And I don't think anybody expects you to hang around if you hit a bear. But if you um, hit a dog. But there might be something under some wildlife legislation. Maybe. Um, yeah, that right. uh, it requires you to report it. Right. Uh, you know, if you have an accident with a grizzly bear, you're probably expected to report it. There's, um, you know, <laughs> If you live to tell about it. If, if you live to tell about it, yeah. Well, you, know, you, you have an accident with a grizzly drunker. bear. If you have an accident with a grizzly bear, that is the end of you. Well, I could tell you I've never had a consult of anybody. Well, no, you could be driving a big truck. You know, you could be driving a rig or something like that. Um, yeah, I wouldn't want to run into them. I know enough stories of people who have uh, run into, run into, I mean, stopped their vehicle and had a grizzly bear attack their vehicle. Um, they're wild animals. They're smart too. It's surprising with these pull handles on on car doors and maybe this is one advantage that tesla's got how often you find now videos where somebody's uh ring camera or something like that records a bear managing to get to a car why because they're just like playing around at the door handle and because it's a pull handle it just opens it up it's one of the reasons i like to drive my 1971 chevy is because you've got to use your thumb to open the door and bears don't have thumbs well there you go Turns out there's a lot more sort of legal consideration in hitting a bear than one might originally think. Um, I didn't think there was anything before we started talking about it. <laughs> now, before we get into our next topic, I wanted to, earlier than usual in the podcast, allow us to take a McGracken moment. Ladies and gentlemen... Let loose the law and justice. Kraken! 
Magrek! Magrek! Welcome to this week's McGracken Moment. Several worthwhile cases to talk about, but I'll just focus on one. This week, the B.C. Court of Appeal upheld a lower court's ruling that the B.C. government's 6% disbursement cap on motor vehicle prosecutions was not valid. Now, let me break this down. The government has basically waged war on B.C. crash victims for years. They created minor injury caps defining most injuries as minor, even if you wouldn't consider them to be minor. They forced cases out of court into a civil resolution tribunal, and then they went full-blown no-fault. But for some of the cases before no-fault, they went and rigged the system further. First, they overhauled the rules of court in B.C. Supreme Court, and they artificially limited how many expert witnesses you could call to prove your case. Now, that was found unconstitutional. That got struck down. But the B.C. government wasn't content there. They took another kick at the can. They amended the Evidence Act, and they basically said, we're going to limit how much you could recover for your disbursements. So regardless of how much evidence you call, we're going to say the disbursements you could recover will cannot exceed 6% of the damages a court gives you. Now, here's the problem. If you're advancing a claim, you have a tough choice to make. You either don't call the evidence you need to prove your case, and then you don't prove your case, but you recover your disbursements, or you prove your case, but if the damages aren't high, you have to eat the cost of the disbursements you needed to prove your case. This is a nasty, rigged system. So this got challenged swiftly, and the lower court ruled that this was an unconstitutional law, and it violated administrative law principles. I won't get into the nitty-gritty, but the bottom line is it got struck down. Government still was not happy. So they appealed it to the B.C. Court of Appeal. The case is called British Columbia and Lee, L.E., and the court upheld the fact that this law was not valid. They split on whether it was constitutional or not, but everybody agreed the government violated administrative law principles and the law remains struck down. Hopefully, they won't try to go off to the Supreme Court of Canada. I can't imagine they'd get leave, but who knows? Uh, but there's a little more clarity in the very muddied system we have for BC crash victims. So the 6% cap on disbursements is not valid. Good news if you're prosecuting a claim. Thanks. Now, the reason why I wanted Eric to start his moment off is to set the stage because he's given a really great summary uh, of the 6% disbursement cap um, and the decision from the BC Court of Appeal still finding the government's 6% disbursement cap law unjustifiable, unreasonable, and unconstitutional. It's a great decision. It's a long read. It's really meaty on law stuff. So unless you really like to nerd out, I would just recommend reading the headnote and listening to Eric and reading Eric's blog post about it. But I thought you and I had another thing that we could talk about, because this is one of those very rare judicial reviews where a government regulation 
is challenged on judicial review for unreasonableness. And you and I have sort of bandied about this question before about how to challenge approval of various things that are done by regulation. Yeah, we have. And, you know, you and I have also noticed, and I noticed this over the course of my career, this particular problem that um, the courts used to impose tests when they thought something was really bad that the government did. Um, and they would, uh, <clears throat> they'd find something, you know, a way around uh, some piece of legislation. But ever since the charter came out, everything's, uh, the charter seems to be their only remedy. It's like the charter hammer. They're dealing with a bunch of, uh, of other things, other tools that they need. And so they just generally don't do it if they can't, you know, find it being some charter violation. Um, and here the, uh, the court of appeal is applying this other standard. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's interesting to see, but I think that this decision actually has broad implications in the practice of driving law, particularly when it comes to the criminal code, because think about all the regulations that are used under the code, the approval of containers for collecting blood samples, the approval of forms of certificate of qualified technician um, and analyst, the approval of saliva testing instruments, the approval of approved screening devices. And those are also approval decisions. Lots of them are done similarly under um, the uh, Motor Vehicle Act, the approval of the drug recognition evaluation system, which is not done the same way that it's taught by NHTSA in Canada. We have a different method of doing the DRE here. Slightly, but still nevertheless different. Yeah, I guess my issue with all of that is that they can say that there is, um, I mean, that in this case, the 6% cap, the court came out, and I haven't read the decision. I've relied on Eric's um, blog post. But the court came out and said it's unreasonable and arbitrary. Yeah, because and you could see that it is arbitrary. But think about, I know, but think about the examples that you provided approved screening devices or standardized field sobriety tests are they arbitrary well it's not that it's not that the tests themselves may be arbitrary but the decision making process to get there is arbitrary for example if you know the the police just said we want to buy this breathalyzer and the government then used their regulatory power to approve that device because the police said we want it that would be arbitrary. But I, I mean, they always go through slightly more than that. Uh, I know they go to the alcohol test committee. Yeah. And they presumably look at it and presumably they do some more than just read the pamphlet. Although one never knows, uh, you know, they're buying them from suppliers who they consider reliable suppliers who've been providing them with this for years. I, I don't, I think you'd have a problem saying, you know, the arbitrary claim. Now, saliva testing, maybe not. You know, you it, it may be easier to make that arbitrary allegation of arbitrariness. Because in saliva think, testing circumstances, they, they use it to form reasonable and probable grounds of impairment, but then they don't actually have those grounds. That, yeah, that's, that's why. Yeah, because it doesn't get them to that point. It doesn't get them to the point to, to conclude that an offense has been committed on a balance of probabilities. What about the use of 
standardized field sobriety testing for drug impairment. For example, we use that in Columbia. It's approved under the VC Motor Vehicle Act and approved under the criminal code. But all of the studies related to SFSTs say that they're specific to alcohol. That actually is a good argument. Now you, you've struck on something there. Um, so I think some background has to be uh, provided for the listeners. Standardized field sobriety tests are basically those tests that you see people um, doing on YouTube when the police pull them over in the U.S. Very rare that you see them in Canada. So like there is some, there's something called the walk and turn where you take some steps and you turn around and then the, there's a nystagmus, which is basically just twitching of your eye. Which the uh, in which an officer holds uh, a pen or a finger, which they call a stimulus, in front of your face, and you follow it with your eye, and the officer watches your eyes. And then there's a one-leg stand where you stand with one leg. And then there's some uh, apocryphal parts of the test, like uh, putting your head back and counting and touching your nose. Um, but they are standardized. There is an accepted standardized tests and a way of grading them. Um, they are very subjective. Um, they are not useful for a huge portion of the population because the, uh, the either disabilities or just variations in humans. Um, and most officers, when you start questioning them, don't know how to do them pursuant to the instructions because they forget. And, um, and so what do they actually tell you in the end? Well, it turns out there is one part of it that is almost quasi-objective, and that is nystagmus. And unless the person, you know, is one of the many, 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 uh, has one of the many reasons that they shouldn't be tested using, you know, assuming a nystagmus, um, such as uh, concussions over the course of their life or age or diabetes or something along that line, um, it will give you some reasonable approximation of of a person having a prohibited blood alcohol concentration. Uh, but everything else in there. Wait, are you referring to the Tharp's equation? Um, maybe. I don't know. Tharp's equation but, takes the angle of onset of, of nystagmus and then subtracts, I think it's 270 minus the angle of onset is going to give the BAC. And that's been. Well, it, does, it, it doesn't tell you BAC. I'm never, I'm not claiming that. I'm saying that, you know, if you see somebody with nystagmus and they are otherwise a good candidate for that testing, um, nystagmus will appear in people when they have an elevated blood alcohol concentration. But again, this is a whole series of tests. Now, these tests are relatively reliable for alcohol, but what about drugs? Um, they're not. You, they're not. They, they, when they when they started looking at them uh, in the states, because they they actually created the test it, with the hope of finding something that would help to identify drivers who were were on drugs, um, but they determined that it is completely useless for that. Uh, that it doesn't tell you anything about whether uh, the the drivers on uh, on any one of the categories of drugs. Um, nystagmus doesn't exist for that. But they did determine that, yeah, um, you know, that test is not bad for alcohol. But in Canada, like an we accident. never really used the test much. Yeah. Yeah. In Canada, we never really used uh, SFSTs very often. We'd have an officer who was just excited to use their training and didn't have an ASD. Um, so we would infrequently see it. And Kyle and I both took the course, the police course, to 
to do it and keep following up on it. Um, but uh, we, when we legalized cannabis, the federal government said we we're going to be using this to establish grounds to do later testing in drug cases. Mm-hmm. And it's not, not, not tested for drugs, not usable for drugs. And so how can you say that that is not arbitrary? Um, and we wondered about this and thought about the, the constitutional challenge. And, and honestly, every time that we've had it, we've succeeded on something else. So we've never had to do it. Somebody along the line, I'm sure in Canada has run one of these cases, whether or not they considered that, I, I don't know. But the arbitrariness of that, you're right. That's where yeah. this decision could apply. But it also could apply to all sorts of other regulations that are arbitrary. Think about the pilot project that decriminalizes drugs in um, British Columbia. The 2.5 milligram limit, is that arbitrary? Or could it be characterized as arbitrary? Like, None of the people that sort of advocated for this really said, that that limit was useful. The only reason that they came up with that limit was because police were advocating for it. Like this has applications outside the driving law context as well. That's an interesting one because we're talking about possessing something. Um, And I suppose the government's entitled to set a limit. I mean, they set a limit on blood alcohol concentration. It's not really arbitrary in the sense that um, we know everybody's impaired over 100 milligrams. And so if yeah. you're picking 80, it's pretty. 0. 0.08, 0. 0.08 is not a, a regulation. That's the law. Do you know what is a regulation, though? The blood drug concentrations. Yeah. And you know what? Those are really arbitrary because it's not going to. Yeah. Your, your THC that you've got in your body that can be there for two weeks and have no impairing effect. And then you've got, you've got 40 uh, milligrams and hundred milliliters of alcohol in your blood mm-hmm. and you're combining those two. Yeah. You're right. Got a point. Yeah. There, this yeah. decision I think has broad based implications for a review of certain aspects of the criminal code related to drug impaired driving. But beyond that, I think related to a lot of things that government does by regulation. And we've seen a trend, you and I have both seen this lately. We've seen a trend of uh, governments using their regulatory powers to skirt having to deal with, um, you know, to deal with the process of passing legislation, debating it, justifying it to the opposition and to the public. And now... You know, just including things in regulation. Think about the changes that they want to make to the distracted or to the traffic court and how they can create a regulation to prohibit certain types of people from appearing in certain processes in traffic court, which we all know, as we've talked about, and as they basically admitted once we called them out on it, was to prohibit lawyers from appearing in traffic court uh, or appearing in resolution conferences for traffic court. How would that be? viewed on a challenge both to its constitutionality as a violation of Section 10B, but also to its arbitrariness and unreasonableness as a regulatory power. In those cases, it's it's uh, ousting the jurisdiction of an established court Yeah, um, where there's a beyond the reasonable doubt standard applied and there's punitive power. So they would have trouble getting around that. 
mm-hmm. as you as you identified. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so I think- yeah, that's an interesting one. That's an interesting one. I mean, I think there's ways they can get around it, but the the increased use of regulation here is going to cause a lot of people to scrutinize it on the basis of this decision. Well, yep. uh, your legal your legal brain is great, Kyla. <laughs> everything you every decision you see you always see as an opportunity to uh to to deal with something uh in the course of your practice which is great well, i try um okay so there's that now paul should we give the people what they want i know what i want the ridiculous driver of the week The reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis, cross-examination the pinpoint method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. Is that not what you wanted? That's what I wanted. Okay. I want the ridiculous (laughs) driver of the week. And this one was like... This one was like the math was all there. It's like a you know a billion monkeys with a million typewriters. You knew eventually it was going to come up. Yes. Um, the thing I love most about this is the number of people that tagged me on social media in this story. Um, I I've been tagged in so many places with this, and I really appreciate it. And I love that people love yeah it's great and i I hope that people were thinking that it would be the ridiculous driver of the week oh i'm sure they were um so this is a guy in colorado and i know the lawyer for him (laughs) who could probably persuade a jury that the that that what he said happened did happen (laughs) a speeding driver who was pulled over in colorado tried to switch seats with his dog in the passenger seat to evade arrest the officer approached the car and watched the bizarre scene unfold. Obviously, he was intoxicated. Um, yeah, he switched places, put his dog in the driver's seat, and then claimed that he wasn't driving. And that it was the dog that was driving. That is hilarious and absolutely ridiculous uh, and really, really a lot of fun. And for the officer, at least. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, even if you did it because you thought it was funny, I mean, it's it's great. It's just fantastic. Anyway, maybe Wolfers is a great driver. He might be able to establish that down the road. Um, and maybe the officer, you know, lots of times we see officers seem to be uh, claimed to have seen something that they didn't see, especially when it comes to who's driving. Mm-hmm. So maybe the dog was driving, but seems pretty unlikely. Um, it was, uh, guaranteed though, that this was going to come up at some point. Now I had your dog, uh, in the car the other day and, um, he's doing very well. And it dawned on me that if dogs are people too, shouldn't you be able to drive with yourself and your dog without a, uh, third person in the HOV lane? Dogs are not people. And I did look this up actually, because I've also had this thought and uh, the Motor Vehicle Act is very specific, and it uses the term "person." Well, I think um, I think that might be revisited, and that oh. could be considered arbitrary. Oh, but uh, Paul, because as I say, dogs are people too. What if I incorporate well dog? If you incorporate your dog, does it become a person? It's a person. Well, yeah. What happens if you're just driving around with your corporate binder in the car? 
Yeah, my corporation. Your, your, cer- your certificate. Yeah, exactly. Your certificate <laughs> of incorporation's there. You're there. Um, you're in your, you've got your corporation. I have an officer at my corporation with me in a corporation as a person. Um, my corporation, leave your binder, your certificate on your driver's seat. Yep. And, uh, and it has care and control of your motor vehicle. There you go. Well, we're getting silly. We're yes. getting as silly as the guy who had his, uh, his, <laughs> think his dog was driving. Turns out it's not drunk logic. Anybody can think this way. So. Yeah, look at that how we look at how we've worked out so many <laughs> so many different things today. I sure hope that uh your, your considerations on the uh arbitrariness of the regulation changes are not um as unfounded as our considerations about dogs being uh capable of being people on the HOV lane. I also hope that. Well, that's our podcast. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Driving Law. You can find us on VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.